This is Usai. Welcome to Let's Talk, a place for open conversations. On today's episode of Let's Talk, I join in conversation with Alfonso David, president of the Human Rights Campaign, a courageous leader in the movement for LGBTQ rights. Also, Melissa King is the chef and a winner of Top Chef Season 17 All Stars. Where among showcasing her culinary skills, also stood as a silent soldier and an openly gay woman on the series. The Human Rights Campaign was formed in 1980 and has become the largest LGBTQ organization in the United States. I had the privilege of speaking to the current president, the charismatic Alfonso David. Who took on the role last year? Alfonso was candid about his identity as a person of color and a proud member of the LGBTQ community, as well as his conviction to expanding and redefining the policies of the Human Rights Campaign. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, I'd love to learn a little bit about the history, how you became the president of Human Rights Campaign. So I have been practicing law for a very long time, close to 20 years. I clerked for a federal judge after law school. I then worked at a major law firm doing commercial litigation. I then ran a company. I joined the civil rights movement officially when I joined Lambda Legal.、Uh, mm. I litigated the marriage equality case in New York.、Uh, we represented same-sex couples who were seeking the right to marry, and they wanted to have their relationships. Respected and recognized under the law, and we won at the trial court level. We ended up losing at the high court, and、uh, I then went into government after that. And I had the privilege of meeting Governor Andrew Cuomo, who's the current governor of New York. He was、uh, attorney general at the time. I joined his office, and I ran the attorney general's office,、uh, civil rights bureau,、uh, litigating cases all over New York.、Uh, he then became governor. And I joined his administration as his chief policy advisor on civil rights and labor issues. And a few years later, he made me his chief counsel, which is the chief legal advisor to the governor in the state of New York, dealing with all legal issues all over the state. And、uh, during that time that I worked with the governor, I had the privilege of、uh, helping to draft the marriage equality law in New York. That yes, exactly. We lost at the court of appeals, but we won. In the governor's office, and、um, now same-sex couples can marry, and it really changed the public discourse throughout the country. I took this position as the president of the Human Rights Campaign almost a year ago. I started in August of last year. This is the largest LGBTQ civil rights organization in the world, and we are working to make sure we achieve equality for LGBTQ people. And this was an opportunity that I couldn't turn down. Uh, I've dedicated my life to social justice, and this is an opportunity to really affect change on a broad scale, beyond any single state, beyond any single border, and really think about how we can make sure that LGBTQ people are respected in their individual lives, in their relationships, when they seek services from government. Hence, I took the position. While you were studying law, were you out already? Were you celebrating the community? Were you public about who you are? No. So when I was in law school, I was not out. 
I actually didn't come out until I joined Lambda Legal, in fact, professionally. Mm. Personally, I came out to my family years earlier, before law school. Uh, it was not a positive experience, but I came out to my family. Uh, my parents are West African, born and raised, Liberian, a very traditional. And uh, it was difficult for them to come to terms with my sexual orientation. And um, it took them a long time, but they eventually got to a place of uh, accepting that this is something that is a part of me. It's not something that I could change. Uh, so when I went to law school, I wasn't out in the traditional sense. I didn't talk about my sexual orientation. Even when I started practicing law, mm -hmm. I wasn't out. There was certainly a fear Years ago, uh, there were very few openly LGBTQ lawyers. People were afraid they wouldn't get offers to join law firms. They were afraid that if they came out in their law firms, they wouldn't get the best assignments. They were afraid that they wouldn't get the bonuses that they were entitled to like everyone else. And it, it wasn't just based on, you know, some abstract principle. Today, today, there are 29 states in this country without any state law protections, comprehensive state law protections for LGBTQ people, 29. So you can imagine back then, there were more states that had no protections for LGBTQ people. And so I operated in a sphere of doing my work and separating my professional life from my personal life. Uh, and that's how I rationalized it for myself for quite some time. How much does that have to do with you being able to stand up and say, this is who I am, you recognize my color, and you have to recognize my sexuality? So I got to that point where it was more important to me to honor my identity, all of my identity. I should say identities, because mm -hmm. there are multiple identities I have. I'm an immigrant. I'm gay. I'm Black. All of those identities are important. I'm a yogi. Um, all of those identities are important to me. But I think in the United States, we create hierarchies of identity where one identity is more important than another. And uh, there are certain identities that are not respected, certain identities mm -hmm. that are not recognized, and they should be. So for me, it took me a while to get to the point where I said, all of these identities that I have are important, and I'm going to come out as a gay man and a proud gay man and make sure that I'm respected and recognized and valued in all of the settings that I operate in. The journey you went through, it inspires so many people like me to be able to say, okay, now I recognize my color and what mm. my color can do in a positive way. And I think it's been a long time coming for anyone in the community of color to be able to stand proudly to celebrate who they are and all the other components combined together to make them the entire human, which, which is exactly the position you're in. We're celebrating human rights. So once are you in that position, what was the first change that you wanted to make? I wanted to redirect our focus on people who are multiply marginalized and people who have multiple identities that are operating under different oppressive systems. Mm -hmm. Someone with HIV, Black, living in the South without access to health care. A Black transgender woman who has limited employment opportunities, facing violence in her neighborhood a uh, woman who is being persecuted in her home country because she's a lesbian or bisexual and is seeking asylum here in this country. Mm. I wanted to make sure that our priorities are focused on people who are multiply marginalized. Because if we're seeking to achieve this 
this, this thing that we call equality. We have to focus on those who are multiply marginalized because then we can really address the core root of the problem. We have oppressive systems that we live in. They've, been, they've existed for a long time. There's a reason why it's been difficult for people to come out and express who they are. It's because it's been illegal for a very long time in this country until 2003 with the Lawrence versus Texas case. Uh, 2003. Uh, until 2003, there were laws all over this country that said same-sex relationships were considered illegal. So the goal is to make sure that we're focusing on people who are multiply marginalized. And that is the first thing that I did when I joined the organization in thinking about priorities and focusing on messaging and also uh, advancing the work. So is awareness number one task at hand? Yeah, so much of this is about awareness, is about, unfortunately, people don't have the information. Mm. I'll give you just a few examples. Since 2013, since the human rights campaign has been tracking numbers, we have more than 180 transgender and gender nonconforming people who've been killed in this country. One, eight, zero. 180. This year alone, we have more than 20 who have been killed in this country. Most of them are black transgender women. So as we think about why are we doing this work, why are we placing a focus on certain things, the facts are that certain members of our community are being targeted. Certain members of our community are living under oppressive systems that are compounded by their, their multiple identities that they, that they own and that they carry with them. Uh, so I, I think it is about awareness and information. 40% of the homeless youth happen to be LGBTQ. Kids that are thrown out of their homes because of who they are end up in the foster care system. They're LGBTQ. One out of five LGBTQ people live in poverty. One out of five. One out of five haven't seen a doctor because they can't afford one. More than 40% of LGBTQ people work in industries that have been disproportionately impacted by COVID. Mm -hmm. So when you take all of that information, it informs the work, it informs the priorities, and hopefully it informs how people can get involved and how they should engage in the work. Because if we're fighting for equality, if we're fighting for this thing, for you and I to be treated the same as everyone else, then we need everyone to be involved in this fight. Because otherwise we will not achieve what we're trying to achieve, and it will not be sustainable. We need everyone to be invested in the quest for equality. One of the things I want to touch upon is that it sounds politically incorrect to say, but Alfonso David, you are not a hashtag trend. Alfonso has been doing this work from the beginning. And by the way, he's been Black all his life, so it's not a trend. <laughs> as far as I know, anyways. <laughs> and also, also, making these changes are important. But we have to make these changes in a way that has impact. So giving someone a title without the power is meaningless. And I embrace the changes that we're seeing across this country. I embrace the changes that we're seeing in corporate America. I embrace the changes we're seeing in the not-for-profit sector. But we need to make sure that we go beyond the labels and that we are assigning the power, the responsibility that should attach to these jobs and these titles. The because otherwise what we're doing is simply tokenizing people, putting them in positions um, without the authority that they should have, without 
the salaries that they should have, without the responsibilities that they should have. And so, again, I embrace what we are seeing, but I want to make sure that it actually has the impact, the intended impact that people are talking about. I, too, hope that those opportunities are offered to people who, one, qualify, two, perhaps make them be able to be qualified in the future because education is a big part of it that's lacking all these opportunity that's out there especially in my industry it's really hard to find black photographers you know i mm. recently found a community of black photographers while talking to each other and i reach out to them and say stop talking among yourself talk to everybody else because they don't know you're here and they're like we don't get the education we don't get the opportunity as everybody else so the, the, it's so important that that opportunity build from ground up, foster the community from ground up. And then that's the same with the LGBT community. Many of us want to become an active supporter and an advocate for the rights for the marginalized and the LGBTQ community. But we don't always know where to begin. We're compelled to have tough conversations, both with our allies and those who fail to understand our identities and lifestyles. I asked Alfonso how I can get involved and for the insight on how to better approach this dialogue. For somebody like me, other than sticking a sticker on the back of my car and, <laughs> and get online and donate that minimum $5, what can we do? What can I do? Just to be clear, what you're doing is significant. I don't want you to undermine the fact that you have made the decision to donate to an organization every single month to support work that may not directly affect you. This idea and this principle about seeing beyond ourselves is so critically important. We have to see beyond ourselves in order for us to achieve equality. We have to make sure that a non-LGBTQ person sees value in the human rights campaign. Right. And so the fact that you're doing that, the fact that you have made a conscious decision to contribute to an organization that is doing civil rights work is significant. But in addition to that, I think if people are looking for other ways to engage, volunteering is another great way to engage. We are making sure that we have as many people registered to vote as possible. We have a constitutional right to vote. We need to make sure that we exercise that right to vote. And so we're working with a variety of organizations uh, to make sure, including UNUDOS, which is a, a Latino-based organization, Latinx organization, uh, to make sure that we get as many people registered to vote as possible. Um, we're also asking people to volunteer, uh, to volunteer with our organization to help to get the word out, to increase awareness, to make sure people are aware of some of the challenges that LGBTQ people face. And those are just a few examples. So if anyone is interested, we have what's called Community Hub, and it outlines all of the volunteer activities in your town. You can go to www.hrc.org. You can get all of that information and start engaging. Well, with all the work you put in in the last year, just in a short amount of time, there are a lot of things we can talk about and celebrate. I want to talk about all the greater good that has accomplished just within the last few months, we have some stuff to celebrate about. Let us share those good news. So the U.S. Supreme Court, as an example, issued a decision a few weeks ago now saying that LGBTQ people are protected under federal civil rights laws. Huge. Significant. Before this decision, you had some employers taking the position that they could fire LGBTQ people from their jobs 
and would have no liability under Title VII, which is the Federal Civil Rights Act that I referenced before. The court has now said, no, that's not the case. Federal civil rights law do protect LGBTQ people from employment discrimination. And by extension, defining sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity, that should apply to all federal statutes. And so that's what we're doing right now, is making sure that the federal administration is going to interpret the court decision in the way that it should. Um, but we also had another really significant court decision uh, regarding DACA. And this is a court decision that was issued maybe only a few weeks ago as well that said that there was an executive order that was issued that protected undocumented students in this country and saying that they have the right to stay in this country and go through a program called DACA. And the court upheld that program. And so all of the dreamers that are here in this country can now stay. We still have to fight to pass legislation to protect them. But at least in the short term, they can stay. They don't have to live under fear that they will be deported from the only country that they know. What's on the top agenda for the next fight? The most significant piece of legislation that we need to pass is the Equality Act. It has passed the House of Representatives under the leadership of Speaker Pelosi, but it has unfortunately been stalled in the Senate. So we need to pass that piece of legislation so all LGBTQ people are protected in all facets of life. Employment, housing, public accommodations, credit, all of these protections we need so that we can live our best in our full selves. This is a philosophical question. Why do you think there's so much fear to give LGBTQ community the equal rights out there? I think traditionally, and at least my experience is, it's, it's much easier to cater to fear than to cater to love. And the, the common concept or philosophy or construct is the pie is this big. And if you open the pie to allow more people, that means I lose something. Mm. And that is not true. That philosophy is a false paradigm. Uh, if you're recognizing and respecting the basic human rights and dignities of everyone else, you're not losing anything, you're gaining something. And I think that's part of why we have dealt with decades and decades of oppression, 400 years of oppression that Black people have been living with in this country. In, in other parts of the world, we have colonization. So this idea that I'm going to take this from you is a false paradigm. By giving people their rights and their protections and everything that they're entitled to, you don't lose anything. Remember, we heard this argument for marriage equality. Yes. And the argument was, if you allow same-sex couples to marry, that means you are going to denigrate the institution of marriage. That means different sex couples will no longer marry. That means the sky is going to fall. Sky didn't fall. Different sex couples still marry. And the institution of marriage still exists. But that concept of if I give you something, that means I lose something, is a common narrative that I think is flawed and we have to refute. How do we make changes when, when people hold fast to the religious argument? I would say this. The number one value in every single religion is love. So God loves me radically. God has this radical love for me. So how is it that God has this radical love for me with all of my imperfections 
and all of my various identities, but you don't. The idea that we are living in a way that's inconsistent with scripture, just by being who we are, that notion is inconsistent with scripture. Remember, scripture has been used before, religion has been used before to legitimize colonization, to suggest that in some cases, the powers that be had the right to go into countries and colonize them. And that was really driven by religion. For a long time, Black people couldn't participate in certain religions because we weren't allowed to under the interpretation of scripture. So I think if we were to look at the true essence of religion and the true essence of scripture, whether you're talking about the Quran or you're talking about the Bible, in every single religion I've had the privilege of at least learning about, I see one common theme, which is love, which is acceptance, which is justice, which is equality. And we should take those principles and apply them in the same way that we see them emanating from the page. And we shouldn't infuse our own biases, prejudices, and perspectives into scripture. Perhaps start with kindness, because if you're kind to yourself, you're going to be a little bit kinder to others. You have compassion for yourself, it becomes more compassionate for others. I sit there and I go, why are they so worried that if I get married, I'm the one going to have to go to divorce if it didn't work out? Well, you should be like, <laughs> celebrate that we're going to go through the same thing you're going to go through. <laughs> Don't you want us to have equal rights so we can have equal suffering? <laughs> exactly. I want to share in your pain and your joy. Give me both. When I first approached Alfonso to have this conversation, we talked about how to make changes, how to actually use our voice. Often, if we are already living in a supportive community or a blue state, we assume that our votes may not matter. Alfonso was quick to point out the urgency of casting the ballot for our local leaders. Change has to start with our local community. The most important thing that we talk offline is voting. Let's talk about that. Yes. That is the number one most important thing that we need to do for the next big change. As I say, protest plus voting equals change. And I would encourage everyone to please make sure you're registered to vote. Make sure everyone you know is registered to vote. And then please exercise this constitutional right that we have. It doesn't exist in many other parts of the world. People don't have this, this right that we have. And I would just please encourage people to use their voice at the ballot box and make sure that we exercise our right to vote. As we talked before yesterday, Alfonso, you gave me a really good lesson to learn because I, ignorant enough, say, well, I live in California. We're, we're going to be fine. If my vote in or not, it's not going to make much difference because we're always going to be blue. So the, the common refrain, which is, look, I live in a blue state. My vote doesn't really count. Well, that's not really true. Because when we talk about elections and we talk about voting, we're not talking about one title. We're not talking about the presidency. We're talking about making sure that you can exercise your right to vote so that your life is informed by the elected officials that are supposed to be representing your interests. So as an example, We've been talking about police reform. We've been talking about transforming policing, I should say, not reforming it, but transforming policing because we have a system that is broken and we need to completely transform it 
in order to have equality. So we need to transform policing. But if you want to transform policing, the person who appoints the police chief in your city or your town is the mayor. The people who review the budgets for the police departments are the city council members. You will have an opportunity to elect people in those positions who will, as an example, diversify the police departments. We don't have a lot of black men and women and Latinx men and women and Asian men and women who are serving as police chiefs in this country. So if you were to exercise your vote and hold your elected officials accountable, you could have a role in transforming policing in your hometown as well. Melissa King is the winner of the prestigious Top Chef Season 17 All-Stars, and she first appeared on the show in its 12th season. Winning on Top Chef is remarkable in its own right. But I wanted to speak with Melissa as she brings so much to the conversation, breaking boundaries by remaining authentic to her Chinese-American heritage, being a voice for women in the kitchen, and an incredible inspiration for the LGBTQ community. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You're the winner this year. This is it. You're the winner. It's been crazy. I know. It's been an exciting journey. There was a lot of tears on on that last episode, but I'm excited for the future and I'm just really proud of myself for what I've accomplished so far. Your first season was actually in Boston. Let's go through that journey a little bit. What got you to Boston the first time? I remember applying for the show and it was just, you know, friends and and people kind of pushing me to do it. And I'm painfully shy and was growing up. And I know that I did it just wanting to try something new and to say yes to something and kind of lean into that fear that I was feeling and, and those butterflies. Next thing you know, I was packing my knives and flying to Boston. And I remember just taking it a day at a time and thinking, you know, I'm just going to try my best, see where it takes me. And I made it to the finals and, and was a finalist. So it was great. It was a great experience, but it really like opened me up a lot and blossomed me into the person I am today. What was it before that? Give us a little bit of journey. If we're going like way back, I went to college, I studied cognitive science, um, and I ended up doing nothing with that and kind of moved forward and <laughs> became a chef, went to culinary school. Um, But, you know, that was something I always wanted to do since I was a kid. I was maybe five or six years old and just dabbling in the kitchen, helping out my mom. And then after culinary school, I moved to San Francisco and built my career there, trained in uh, three different Michelin star kitchens, kind of spearheaded those. Then I did some butchery for about two years, was a butcher for a restaurant. Then I did private chefing and did some private chefing around San Francisco and then I joined the Top Chef world. But were your family members supportive, were mom and dad supportive of your new journey away from the cognitive science? Yeah, you know, it took some time. It took some time to convince them. I, I know with my family, they came here from Hong Kong and, and, you know, didn't really have much. And they worked in restaurants. Those were sort of, that was my parents' first jobs were like wrapping wontons at a, at a Chinese restaurant here when they were 17 and didn't know English. And my father was a busboy. They're now retired engineers. But I think going through that journey, 
And then for me to say, hey, I want to be a chef and I want to work in the creative restaurant industry, they were like, no way. What are you doing with your life? You need to be a doctor. You need to be a lawyer or something that didn't rely on such a physically demanding career. So they were looking out as parents and it really came from a place of love. But I think, you know, wanting to transition into creative, and I'm sure you know and, and experience that yourself, it does take a little bit of convincing and pushing. That story gets told a lot. And it's a, it's a story about immigrants, right? The first generation, exactly. I'm a first generation immigrant. I was born in Taiwan. And when my family moved over here, they too worked in a restaurant. That wasn't what they were trained. My dad was a photographer before. Mm-hmm. And oh, really? Yeah. So the so language barrier really yeah. hindered him in order to, to do that business. So he worked in a Chinese restaurant. And as a good Asian family member, if you can walk and you can reach the dishwasher or the sink, you're going to be in the kitchen with them. But that, that seemed to be a common denominator that we all share, that our parents as Asian Americans really do want us not go through what they've gone through. Deciding to be a chef, to work in a restaurant, it is not as glamorous you see on TV. It's, it's hard yes. work and dedication, but yeah, I think um, it often gets glamorized, you know, television and, and the things you see out there, but it is very much a labor of love. You love it enough, you stick to it, you know, and then you make, you make your dreams come true. When you're on that show, and what I found out over the last six weeks, interviewing lots of different contestants been on the show, and also just people and chefs in the industry, it's incredible for me to learn the camaraderie among everyone on that show. But yeah, mm-hmm. you guys have this incredible love and support of each other outside that show. So when you go on that show, what's it feel like to compete with your friends and people that you all work together again and again? Yeah, you know, like I, I knew some of the people going into the All-Star season, but I think the na- like the nature of being in a restaurant or in a kitchen, you do bond together because you spend hours of hours together. And so you become family. And, and that's actually what happens on the show because we live together too. And we cook. So 24-7, we're stuck together whether you want it or not. You know, kitchen thrives on teamwork and camaraderie, and you see a lot of elements of that um, play throughout the season. And I'm I'm so glad that they showed that side to us because we really just wanted to support each other and 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 let people excel based off of their strengths. And you know, for, at least for me, I was not going to sabotage anyone because I just didn't I didn't want to win that way. You know, like I want to play fair here. Like I want everyone to perform at their best. And so I'll do what I can to help them get there. Kitchen culture throughout the Western world has been fueled by testosterone, a world where most executive chefs are male, and an aggressive ethos has been traditionally promoted. I wanted to know how Melissa encountered this as she came up through the high-pressure environment of Michelin star restaurants, and how she came to find and discover her own voice. As a woman stepping into that, did you ever find yourself going, just fighting harder and harder to be there? Many times. Um, you know, I started cooking around the early 2000s or getting in kitchens, and it was a different world back then. It was very cutthroat, you know, people cussing at you, throwing pots and pans at you. It was a very high testosterone, you know, masculine environment. And I did often feel out of place being one of probably the only woman in a, in a lot of the kitchens that I had worked in. So yeah, I really did feel I had to stick up for myself, you know, use my voice, even in moments where I felt maybe it wasn't 100% necessary, but I did need to speak up a lot. 
Did you feel that being Asian American also had to be one of the hurdles that you had to overcome? You know, I think I, that was more so in maybe the style of my cooking. I noticed a big shift um, growing up. You know, I, I remember thinking I need to acclimate more into society and kind of be more American and show less of my Chinese side. And I remember going to school having like weird, you know, things in my lunchbox like kanji and ramen and rice and being made fun of for that. So I think that kind of shifted my perspective of, of how I wanted to be as a chef throughout my early 20s. And I kept thinking I need to, need to cook more French and I need to cook more Italian because that was what was being praised at that time. But then, you know, Top Chef happened and around that time was where I really started to discover and embrace myself as an Asian American. For sure, for the Top Chef All-Star season, I just really wanted to be very unapologetic about the food I was creating. I wanted to create food that felt like me and told my story and really celebrated that Asian side of my identity. On season 17 Top Chef, Melissa's culinary voice emerged. She began to openly embrace her Asian culinary point of view, and was bold enough to fuse it with Italian cuisine. I'm so happy to see that in the last 20 years or so that we have started to educate people about fusion, about sure. what is it like to have different culture and different food, and, and mm -hmm. even in colleges now that they have like Indian food areas and Chinese food, you know, pop-ups everywhere. And then that's something I wish we had when we're at that age. I'm grateful that we're moving, we've moved into the direction that we are today and that I hope it continues to just become more diverse and more flavorful and, you know, bringing in all these rich cultures because there's so much amazing food out there that is untouched and undiscovered by other communities. And so for me, it's like, how can we like bring that all together and bring some really delicious food to the table? You took opportunity on the show to amplify that voice and telling stories how to merge between Italian food and Chinese mm -hmm. food together. When I saw those dishes come out, I was like, wow, you're, you're not, to me, you guys are not chefs any longer. You guys are true artists. You are painting oh, with you. ingredients and, and, and taking the best of the best ingredients and, and celebrate them. Honestly, it's just ballsy to, to feed someone in <laughs> a pasta in Italy. And where did you get those strength and the energy and the gumption to be able to have that, that ballsiness to, to do that? I think, again, it just kind of all started from my first experience of Top Chef back in Boston, where... I didn't really find my voice in food. I wasn't as confident as a person, as a chef, but I found that throughout that journey and carried it on, you know, the next five or six years to the Top Chef All-Star season. Mm -hmm. And so I really just went in feeling like, you know what, I'm going to just, I'm going to do me and I'm going to cook what I love and I'm very unapologetic about this and just do it. And you either like it or you don't and, and kick, you can kick me off for it. <laughs> so I, I started doing things that I felt just really confident in. Like I remember the, the second to last episode uh, we had to cook with prosciutto and everyone in Italy kept saying, you're not supposed to cook the prosciutto. Don't cook the prosciutto. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to cook the prosciutto because it's going to be awesome and it's going to taste great. <laughs> so I made a prosciutto XO sauce, which is a very traditional Hong Kong style condiment. And it has cured ham cooked into it. And I just kind of, you know, use the, the technique of Chinese cooking, 
use the flavors and ingredients of Italy to, to build that dish. But I think awesome. you just kind of have to like believe in yourself and like stick to your gut and just go with it, you know, and see, see where it takes you. So I kind of went in with that attitude. Well, you have done first of many in the industry, <laughs> first of openly LGBTQ community winning top chef. I, I want to dive into that a little bit just because I'm part of that community with you. And I think it's so special because being being Asian American, there's already a lot of stigma about our culture, a judgment. And I myself have learned that as well. Being in fashion world, mm-hmm. we're, it's very accepted because as the creative people, we're creative. So we can be whatever. When I started doing shows and started doing creating content for food, and my shows in Asia, and I was a little fe- fearful and scared that if I was living as loud as I like to be, would that hinder the, the ability for me to have a presence on television? And, and I constantly struggle with that. I don't hide mm-hmm. my sexuality in any way whatsoever, you know, I, but I don't live loudly. I'm not a loud yes. gay person to begin with. I'm just loud. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I say that because by watching you and seeing what you have done and living who you are unapologetically you're like this quiet soldier paving so many waves for so many of us and i just i need to thank you for that it's, it's incredible you. because one that we're fighting inclusion all the time in the television world and mm-hmm. we're and to get asian american to be more recognized on television that i have stories and stories how difficult it is going to auditions over and over Very and so i thank padma for this as well being an indian asian american and have her being a host on Top Chef broke the glass ceiling, number one. Mm-hmm. And then embracing LGBT community and celebrate them as not calling them out, but a normal part of our society. Exactly. And, and not, there's not even a word you need to include us. We're just <laughs> part of this world. And that's yeah. why I think the most important thing about celebrating LGBT community, right? Exactly. It is, this is who I am. And guess what? This is the food I put on the table. Exactly. Now, and, and, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really, for me, like pride is, it's more than just being proud, you know, it's about living your truth and being, being okay with being you and having that strength to be yourself. And so, um, yeah, I think I, I feel very fortunate to be in a position where I'm a chef with the platform, but I'm going to use that platform and I'm going to speak and I'm going to be loud about it <laughs> in ways, you know, not super loud, but you know, loud, loud for an Asian. <laughs> Dear to my heart, that it really touched me the most is finding out that the food community are the number number one community that shows up at any time when there's a crisis. Mm-hmm. During this time, I learned and I cry with many chefs at how they have put their personal needs aside and feed the community around them. When I found out that's what this community does, it makes me want to be part of it even more. That's why you see me here and every week I said, I will have a chef on this show every week just because I want to hear about what they're doing and how are they able to contribute back to the community and how do we help this industry during this difficult time? There was a uh, cruise ship that got stuck in Oakland. And I remember I, I just immediately dropped my stuff, dropped all my work and volunteered for World Central Kitchen with Jose Andreas. And just I knew that I had to help in feeding people and do what I can to get food onto that boat because there was several hundred people trapped on that boat and they just didn't have access to things. But I think moving forward from that, you know, I've I've just been trying to find ways to continue to support through the work that I do. Um, I've been hosting a lot of virtual cooking classes and tying those to charities that I believe in. 
my one fan favorite this year. And that was also something really important to me to feel to give that I need to give back. And so 100% of that $10,000 prize money um, will be going to support Black Visions Collective, Asian Americans for Equality, Asian Youth Center in Los Angeles, and the Trevor Project, which touch upon all things that just like hit home for me, uh, merch line and apparel line. So I, I have like hats and t-shirts and um, I made these pride hats with little rainbows on the side and $5 of every hat goes to the Trevor Project. Um, which is a national organization that offers suicide prevention and crisis support for LGBTQ um, youth. So I just found it so important that, you know, whatever I do, I'm going to try to be a better human. I'm going to try to give back where I can. And I always try to encourage others out there to do so as well. You did it. You won this season in the way that's the most gracious way I've seen on the entire 17th season. There was no sabotaging. There was no throwing (laughs) anybody under the bus. And, you know, my favorite episode is always Risk from War, because you think that's the time that you really get to see people's color. And you went through that with just incredible grace. Thank you. I want you to share that experience, because a lot of people always ask, I get DMs, find out the Risk from War really is done in 48 hours or 24 hours, whatever the time limit is. (laughs) It is, yes. (laughs) So let's go through that experience of what that anxiety is like, and how did you stay so poised through the entire challenge you know that is restaurant wars is the most highly anticipated uh challenge of of every viewer out there but also for the chefs we love restaurant wars as much as we hate it we love it (laughs) because it pushes us it challenges us to create outside the box and bring a vision to life uh, from the ground up and we do it together as a team and so I don't know. I know it was it was probably the most stressful like three days of my life. <laughs> it, it takes about three days or so to put it all together, um, but it was just so much fun. And I don't know. I think by nature, my personality is to just kind of roll with the punches. I don't like to sit and complain about things. I try to stay positive where I can, and I try to support the people that I'm with. So I know that Kevin, you know, had his vision to really create this very intense menu, very, you know, intense concept. And I tried my best to support that in the ways that I could and and along with the rest of the team. So I think a lot of it was just communicating, which we all communicated very well together. And we're, again, we're all friends, you know, in and outside of competition. But unfortunately we had, we had a lot of dishes <laughs> on that episode. 14? It was a 14. 14. And I, I remember trying to vote. I voiced, yeah, pretty firmly that this was too much. We need to do less. I kind of got beat out by the leader of the group because, you know, it's, it's his vision. It's his concept. And he felt it was very important to, to maintain that many dishes um, to, to portray the vision of, of his restaurant. So we, we tried to make it happen best that we could. As our conversation comes to an end, we see Melissa celebrate her Asian heritage through her cuisine. I wanted to know about her favorite dishes that she created throughout the season and what they meant to her. Well, in this entire season, could you define one dish that really defines you? There, there are so many, but I would say the, the ones I felt most proud of were the, um, those four dishes that I created in the finale. 
were really recipes and, and dishes that told my story and really spoke to who I am as a Chinese American, as a Michelin trained chef, um, as a Californian chef, because I was, I remember kind of, I let the market guide that menu and direct where, where each dish should go. So, you know, I had that octopus with the tasu glaze, kind of hybrided that Italian and Cantonese concept together. And then I made the handmade pastas, which really showcased the time I used to work at an Italian restaurant and did all the pasta making there. Um, but I kind of put like an Asian twist to that with like yuzu, bonito, shiso. And then I had um, this uh, squab dish that had persimmon and porcinis and chestnuts and all these really incredible flavors that highlighted Italy. But so that was sort of the Californian side to me uh, because I'm Californian born and raised. And then the Hong Kong milk tea was like kind of the one big one that I would say like really spoke to my roots and like where I come from. And it, it's really truly a beverage that my family drinks every morning. My mom makes Hong Kong milk tea every morning. And I felt, you know, how can I, how can I bridge together Italian and, and Cantonese and, and really like do it right? And so, it, I mean, it made a butcher cry. <laughs> it did. It was very, you know, what it I made love me cry. I like <laughs> cried really hard when I heard about that and when I saw it on television. Well, I love that single dish of the milk tea because in the Asian culture, Taiwan, we have boba, right? We started the whole exactly. bo- the bubble tea for those people who don't know what boba is, but it's tapioca tea. And uh-huh. and it's finally now making it to the United States. It's finally now embraced by the Western culture. Mm-hmm. However, it, when you made that, it made such a statement about how important of something that is so mundane and such a stable in the Asian culture. In mm-hmm. fact, you can get it just around every street corner can be elevated into a Michelin chef's hand and carry it through the continent of Italy what is a award-winning chef and make him cry. Thank you to Alfonso David for sharing his time with me and being such a leader and advocate for human rights. I also want to congratulate Melissa King for being a top chef champion and most important to me, being a voice for the LGBTQ and Asian American community. Thank you to all my listeners for your support. Please visit us at our website, liveletstalk.com, and you can follow me on Instagram, usai88. Let's Talk is a production of 88 Phases. Our director, Luis Jaime. And writer, editor, and producer, Trevor Swernigen.